0: Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your holy tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me, Hope in God? For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Our sermon today is going to be Genesis 41, verses 37 through 45. This is our 102nd Genesis sermon, so we're moving right along. And uh, it's called Prophet, Priest, and King. The savior of the world. So here we go. We'll read the text first and then we'll uh, do an evaluation of it. Genesis 41 starting in the 37th verse. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, that there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaph nath paaneah and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of An. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, as a biblical figure, Joseph is uh, somewhat like David in several ways. I don't know if you've ever made that connection, but he was the second youngest of a big family, and David was the youngest. Both were raised as shepherds as well, and Joseph's brothers, as you know, rejected him and they sold him off as a slave. And David, he was mocked by his older brother Eliab when he went and inquired about fighting against the great champion Goliath. Eventually, though, both rose to be great rulers who would lead and shepherd their people. They were great men of God who overcame trials and obstacles while maintaining their faith in God's providential care over them. Now, although we're gonna be looking at how Joseph pictures Christ throughout today's verses, we shouldn't forget that he was just a regular person who was chosen by God to do great things. We may not have an opportunity to interpret dreams for a king, but we do have the opportunity to do great things for the Lord. Billy Graham dedicated his life to preaching about Jesus and you can see what he did. But I wanna tell you something. No less important are the people who moved his podium or set up his sound system because he could not have gotten the message out without them. Every person can do something great, even if it's unnoticed. Greatness from a biblical context is being noted as a person of faith and a person who lives faithfully. Now, I'll give you a perfect example is the prostitute Rahab. You know what? She, she was a prostitute. But when she uh, heard that the Israelites were coming over to subdue the land, she knew that their God was the God and who was stronger than anything that they would face. And so, by faith, she's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible's Hall of Faith, for what she did. She hid the spies up on the roof and then she made a, a covenant with them. If you'll do this and you'll, uh, they said, if you'll do this and you do this and, you know, we'll, we'll work together. And uh, she ended up being in the genealogy of Jesus Christ because she was a woman of faith. And there are unnamed people in the Bible that are recorded there because God wanted us to see their faith. There's a perfect example of this young lady that was taken captive from Israel off to Syria during a battle. She was the one of the servant girls of Naaman the Syrian, if you know who he is, somebody that's mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, he had leprosy, and he wanted it cured. And this young Israelite girl, not named in the Bible, said, I know that there is a prophet in Israel who can cure my uh, master Naaman. Now, the, the, the point of what I'm saying is that he went to Israel and he was cured and he was named by Jesus in the New Testament, but none of that would have happened without her testimony. It's astonishing how the Bible works. Now, before Joseph was exalted, he was thrown into prison. He eventually went to run that prison and he did it without losing faith. Your participation in whatever you do, when it is founded on faith, is going to be rewarded by God. Trust this and have faith in it. And remember this as we look at the details of the life and the times of Joseph. Our uh, text verse today comes from, uh, text verse comes from Psalm 105. It says there, now this is speaking of Joseph in the 105th Psalm. He made him Lord of his house and ruler of all of his possessions to bind his princes at pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Joseph was given great responsibilities first in Potiphar's house, Then in prison, and both times he handled those duties wisely and he did them faithfully, and he could have given up, you know, when he was taken out of Potiphar's house and put into uh, prison, but he didn't. He stayed faithful even then, and eventually, as Pharaoh's appointed ruler over the land, he served faithfully in that position as well. So we can learn how to handle our own lives in a right way by paying attention to the word that God has given us, and so may God speak to us through His word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is the Spirit of God. We have unexplained dreams. We have sound interpretations. And then we have wise counsel, which have all led to the point that we're at today. After displaying that God is truly with him in all that he's done, and he's suitable to understand the times and the needs of the people under the uh, hand of Pharaoh, Joseph is now going to receive release from the many years of bondage that he's faced. Now, what seemed only moments earlier, literally, if you take this in one continuous uh, reading of uh, Genesis, it's only moments earlier that it seemed that he had a life destined for obscurity and meaningless servitude and even unending imprisonment. And all of a sudden now it's going to be replaced with blessing and honor and rule. The life of Joseph is securely in the hand of God And the dreams he had more than 13 years ago that showed that he would be the ruler over his brothers and that they would come and bow to him will not go unfulfilled. And so we turn to the words of scripture here to show us the exaltation of Joseph and this same story picturing the greater exaltation of our Lord Jesus. Verse 37, so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. Joseph's advice, last week we saw he could have gotten himself in trouble because he gave unsolicited advice to Pharaoh, but it was taken as it should have been. Pharaoh didn't count it presumptuous, and he did not count it arrogant, but rather as well-grounded and fully sufficient to meet the crisis which is anticipated in his dreams. Here Joseph reflects many passages which speak of the Christ to come. Our Christmas sermon this year, we talked about Isaiah chapter 9. And there in that chapter, it said Jesus is the wonderful counselor because of his wisdom and his ability to both discern and communicate that wisdom. And we've already seen that in Joseph. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, a verse which is perfectly descriptive of Joseph here, and the Lord whom he pictures, we read these words, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We're going to see that in the next verse that we look at. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Think of Joseph, think of Jesus. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It fits both of these perfectly. Joseph as picturing the greater Christ who is coming. Joseph knew when to speak, he knew what to speak, and he knew when to stop speaking. As he now listens to Pharaoh, compliments are bestowed upon him from the ruler of the great house. Now we have to remember as we go along that Joseph was dirty, He was wearing prisoner's clothing, and he was without any hope at all, just a couple minutes earlier. And the same can be applied to any one of us at some point during our life, maybe in a variety of ways. If we look back on our life, we can see times of trial, times of sadness, maybe times of scratching out a mere existence. Or maybe we had an issue with our health. Or it might seem that uh, uh, right now we have the same type of thing in our life. The suffering will never end. But it will. It did then and it will again. Can good come out of our times of suffering? That's one thing that we have to ask ourselves every time we go into one. And the answer is yes. It might come in an unexpected way. All of a sudden we get released and we're standing on a mountaintop. Or, honestly, it may not happen until we pass on. But we will receive our reward if we remain faithful. If our hope is in Christ all of our hardships will someday be forgotten. And that's one of the lessons that we can get from the life of Joseph. Peter speaks about exactly this attitude in his first epistle. There he says these words, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We have them in our life now. We've had them in the past. We may have them again. But what is the purpose of those trials? Peter tells us that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate point of the trials that we suffer as Christians. The times of uh, various griefs, as he says. All of these things are meant to refine us. They're to teach us patience, and they're to mold us more into the image of Christ. And we go through these things that the genuineness of our faith might be tested. He says about gold, gold is refined in the fire. It's made more pure, but even gold perishes. But the reward for our faith will never perish. And that is what Peter is trying to tell us, probably thinking about somebody like Joseph when he was writing those words. Verse 38, then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? He's encompassed by his counselors, these wise men, these magicians and all of the leaders around him. And this verse then sounds as much like an accusation from Pharaoh on their inability to interpret his dreams as it is a compliment on Joseph. Where they have failed, he has prevailed. Where there was uh, only blindness, he was able to see. And in place of incompetence, depth of understanding has arrived. And what seems as even a further indictment on them because of the gods that they sought out, Pharaoh says that Joseph is a man in whom is the spirit of god the term is ruach elohim it's the spirit of god but this is the very first time that this term ruach elohim has been used since the creation of the world all the way back in genesis 1 verse 2 it said these words the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters it's 2200 or more years later and that's the first time that this term has been used again in the pages of the Bible Ruach Elohim and I want to be honest with you it can be translated in the plural saying spirit of the gods okay but that is not what Pharaoh is referring to here Joseph has already said several times in Pharaoh's presence that only the God Ha Elohim can interpret dreams the preciseness of what is written is to ensure that we see that Pharaoh understood this that's why we got into such detail last week with him. Every time he said the God, it was to set up what Pharaoh was saying to him right now. And so Pharaoh repeats this, and he says that the Spirit of God is in him. Perfectly picturing Jesus in this sense, the very first time that this, this exact same term, the Spirit of God, is used in the New Testament, it is speaking of Jesus at his baptism. John, or I'm sorry, Matthew uh, 3, verse 16 says this. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The three are being harmoniously tied together in the Bible. The spirit of God was right there at the creation. The spirit of God resides now on Joseph, who pictures the coming Redeemer. And the Spirit of God rests upon Christ, who is both the Lord of creation and our great Redeemer. These patterns are rich, they're elegant, and they are very carefully woven together so that we can see these things. The Spirit of God rests upon his anointed, Joseph, as he now rules over Pharaoh's land as Lord. And the one to whom these things have pointed is our Savior Jesus, God's incarnate word. Our second thought today, presiding over the great house. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Pharaoh now credits Joseph's ability to God. In his address, he uses the word, the words, Ein nabon none is discerning and wise. This is the Bible's first use of this word for this type of discernment, and only the second use of the word for wise. The first time, guess what it was speaking of? The wise men of Egypt. There is the wisdom and discernment from God, and there is the wisdom of the world. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, therefore, it is written. Now think of the scribes and all these people that are around Pharaoh. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. this is exactly what's happening here in this passage. A message of good news was in fact first preached to Pharaoh, and he accepted it. The wise, the scribe, and the disputers of the age of Egypt were made foolish to demonstrate the superiority of the discernment and the knowledge which comes from God. And what does that tell us? That tells us that the Bible must be the standard. The word of God, not written at the time, but it's still the word of God coming from Joseph to Pharaoh is what saved the people. And all of the wisdom and all of the supposed wisdom of the people of the world cannot compare to what God tells us. And I'm going to give you a perfect example that just popped into my mind is global warming. The wisdom of the people of the world telling us that they have to act and they have to save the world. And then God, it's almost as if he's mocking them in derision, laughing at them to scorn when he sends this winter down on the world. And we're facing the coldest time probably in our history. And we've got a expedition of global warming alarmists going down to the Antarctica and they get stuck in the ice that is thicker and more widespread than it's been in eons. And then the people that go to rescue them get stuck in the ice. And it's as if God is saying, pay attention. The global warming which is coming on the world is real. And it's the global warming which is prophesied in the book of Revelation. It says that God will send them searing heat because they failed to believe God. God is the one that's going to warm up this world. And he's probably going to do it with the sun, not with carbon emissions that we say are destroying this world. He's given us these things to use So that's the wisdom of the world right there. And the Bible will always be the standard against the wisdom of the wise. Unless that wisdom is tied in with the words of scripture, it means nothing. It means less than nothing because it's an offense to God that we would hold the wisdom of the world above what he has already spoken so clearly to us. And now Pharaoh's words of Joseph's exaltation will come. Each points directly to the future Christ so clearly that it is simply not possible to miss if one is looking rightly at the words that are going to be bestowed on him. They are reflected in Paul's words to the Philippians in chapter 2. He said these words, now think of Joseph and what we're going to talk about as, a, as I read these about Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father now pay attention and think of those verses as we look at what uh, pharaoh does for joseph verse 40 you shall be over my house joseph is given complete rule over pharaoh's house now we need to remember that pharaoh means great house it's picturing all of god's creation including heaven itself And this is reflected in several passages in the New Testament. There's one in Hebrews 3 that perfectly mirrors the authority that Pharaoh has granted to Joseph, and it's reflected in the appointing of Jesus over God's house. Here's what it says. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward. Now remember, This is one of the books of Moses. It's speaking of what Moses gave us, not Moses specifically, but what he has given us. He's the lawgiver. He's the one that gave us these pictures as well that would be spoken of afterward. Uh, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He's given all authority over God's house. And Jesus' words to the disciples concerning his authority reflects the same type of authority that Joseph has been granted by Pharaoh. Here's what he said, this familiar passage that I hope everybody here knows. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Joseph rules over the great house of Pharaoh. Jesus rules over God's great house, which is heaven and earth. He sits as the final authority over all matters. Verse 40 continues, And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Pharaoh leaves no person who is not subject to Joseph's authority and to his spoken word. The rule is complete and without limitation in person or in practice. An interesting phrase is used here by Pharaoh, though something you wouldn't get in the English translation. In the Hebrew, he says, piha Yisach Ami." This is literally translated as, "At your mouth do all my people kiss." In this culture, culture in Egypt, as in others, it was and it still is, even in times today, customary to kiss something that is relayed from a superior or something possessed by that person. We see it in the Catholic Church when people kiss the ring of the Pope. It is his supposed symbol of authority, and so they kiss it acknowledging that. We see it in other similar displays around the world as well, both in religious and in kingly contexts. In the context of Joseph, it is specifically referring to the proclamation of Pharaoh, which would be made into a written edict, and then it would have been kissed by everyone who received it. This would symbolize their obedience and their due respect for the title and the position of their appointed sovereign. To refuse the kiss would result in at least banishment and more probably death. The parallel to Jesus is seen directly in the second Psalm. Here's what it says there. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Peter tells us that this son, Jesus, is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him, all prefigured by what is happening to Joseph right now. Verse 40 continues, only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh finishes the grant with these words right here the throne of the great house alone is reserved from Joseph's rule. Now, rather than this being an argument against Jesus' deity in type, it actually confirms it. The parallel is seen in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It's a little confusing, so I'm going to say God and Jesus as I go through it. It says, for he, God, has put all things under his, Jesus' feet. But when he says that all things are put under him, Jesus, it is evident that He, God, who put all things under him, Jesus, is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, meaning Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, God, who put all things under him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each has a role within the Godhead. Thus, Jesus, even though he is fully God, is subject to the Godhead to which he is a member. We see this in Joseph's rule over the domain of Pharaoh while still being subject to the great house. In the words, only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you, we find the description of the one who has sole management of all state of affairs, all authority, and all rule. It is a correct and it is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus within the Godhead. To Jesus is granted all rule and all authority, To him shall every knee bow and every tongue confess. For only he prevailed over death, gaining the victory. Let us, the glorious and exalted name of Jesus, profess. Verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is granted rule over all the land of Egypt. Egypt means, if you remember this from a previous sermon, double distress. It is symbolic of the fallen, unredeemed world, which is in double distress, living without God's law and having no hope. But now there is hope. In Joseph, there is a ruler who will bring that hope, and he pictures the greater hope which is found in Jesus. Jesus has been granted all authority over the world. It includes all rule, all power, and all resources. It is his world to direct, and it is his world to rule. In this verse, then, we see Pharaoh's edict, which establishes Joseph's rule. Next will come his installation into that office. And that's our third thought today. Prophet, priest, and king, the savior of the world. Verse 42, then Pharaoh took off his signet ring. Now imagine the tenderness of this. Pharaoh takes off his signet ring and put it on the hands of Joseph. Can you imagine that? The ruler of all of Egypt personally takes off his ring. He doesn't hand it to him. He doesn't give it to somebody else. He puts it on Joseph's hand. The symbol of Pharaoh's rule and his authority is given to Joseph in this act. What Joseph now decides will have the same weight as if issued by Pharaoh himself. No other person in the kingdom could challenge his authority or countermand uh, a command which is given by him. And this goes right back to Jesus' authority granted him by God, God the Father. All rule and all authority belongs to him and all powers and authorities are subject to him. He alone rules the domain which has been brought under his hand. Verse 42 continues, and he clothed them in garments of fine linen Even today, we can do this. We can look back at the immensely precious quality of the linen which was used at the time of Joseph by looking at the garments that the mummies are wrapped in. This special linen was worn by the priests of Egypt. And so this portion of verse 42 is showing us that the priests were not exempt from Joseph's authority. In fact, because of his rule, he is now not only over the people as a sovereign but also over the priests as a high priest. And in this then, we have a picture of Jesus in his three main roles. His role of prophet is seen in Joseph's interpretation of the dreams. His role as king is seen in Joseph's granted authority, which is the signet ring. And his role as high priest is seen in this verse right here by the garment which uh, Joseph is given. In type and in picture, Joseph prefigures Jesus, our great prophet, priest, and king. Now these fine garments, this linen which is given to him, in Hebrew, the word is shesh. And it's translated into the Greek translation of the Old Testament as the word busanen. It's a word which is used to indicate extreme whiteness. The writings of Pliny and the writings of Herodotus show us that these were in fact used by the priestly class. These were of the very finest linen, in the Hebrew, I want you to know something. In the Hebrew, and I'm not going to pass this around, but I will have it on the uh, the video if uh, the video comes out okay. The end of this word in the Hebrew, there's an unusual dash at the end of the word, which is you never see in any of the Hebrew writings, but it's got this unusual dash. And it's believed to indicate that this garment was granted in accord with a set custom. And that's what that dash is telling us. Now, this might seem like too much detail until we look at the words of Mark, chapter 9, which speak of Jesus' transfiguration. Listen to this. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain, apart from themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The unusual Hebrew of this verse, this extra dash, is a precursor to Mark's vivid description there. Jesus' clothes were exceedingly white, like no launderer on earth could make them. And this is why these hints are given at in the Old Testament. Everything, everything points to Jesus, even an unusual dash which is inserted at the end of a word in Hebrew. Verse 42 continues, and put a gold chain around his neck. Pharaoh also places a gold chain on Joseph's neck. This, like the ring, would have been a badge of office. It's something very similar to this is seen Uh, given to Daniel as a result of his promotion to the third highest ruler in the land. Again, this looks forward to Jesus. It's seen in the golden band, which he wears in Revelation chapter one. Here's what it says there. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Verse 43 And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, bow the knee. The symbolism of the chariot actually points to Jesus as well. Psalm 104 says that the Lord makes the clouds his chariot. And the psalm is attributed to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. Isaiah as well speaks of the Lord and his chariots in the 66th chapter of Isaiah, which is looking forward to the 66th book of the Bible, which is Revelation speaking of Jesus. Here's what it says. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. As Joseph rode in the chariot, it says that they cried out before him, bow the knee. The word here is avrech, Unfortunately, it's the only time in the Bible that this word is used, and so it's not actually certain what it means, but scholars generally agree that it refers to an act of bowing. Such would be fulfilled in this verse, which I've already read you from Philippians chapter two. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. I gotta tell you what, detail after detail after detail. Old Testament knew it is all pointing to Jesus he is our king and he is due our allegiance. He is our high priest and he is due our prayers and our mediation goes through him to God. He is our prophet and therefore we receive his word as it's been given to us. And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, it's funny how things happen during the week which point to what I'm going to talk about during the week. This week one of my favorite professors from the seminary I attended, he's an instigator. He loves to post things and then let people attack each other and work out theology. And uh, he posted his new um, look to his blog this week. And, uh, you know, in other words, come and look and see what I have. And right there at the top, one of the top articles is something on uh, how Catholics and Protestants disagree and how to make a logical argument between the two. And uh, so I got on there and I said, well, the best way to argue against Roman Catholicism is to simply quote the Bible, because either this is God's word or it's not. And so I went in and I made a couple comments and I brought in an issue about Mary, and all of a sudden I had numerous Catholics attacking me. I mean, just going at it, saying I'm saying things out of context, and uh, you know the church has uh, authority, uh, blah blah blah. And they're just going on and on, back and forth, back and forth. And one of them got to the point where he actually demanded that I either uh, uh, tell him if I agreed to the Council of Ephesus or not. I mean, they have all these things. If you don't agree to this, then you're anathema. Then he's demanding that I say either I agree to it or I don't. And I'm saying, I don't owe you anything. I owe God the allegiance. And that's the point I'm making about this verse. Because Catholics pray to Mary and they pray to the saints. And the Bible says we're not allowed to do that. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, which implies that if we pray to anybody else, we are denying Jesus his right. There is one word. He is our prophet. So if the Catholic Church, and I'm not anti-Catholic, I'm just against their theology in many points, but if the Catholic Church or the Seventh-day Adventists or anybody else say, this is comparable with Scripture, you have to do this, then you are now saying that what God has given is insufficient for your life and practice. And so this is how that went back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm done with this. I've said what I've said. You have to face the Lord. And one thing is certain, you will face the Lord. Even Catholics acknowledge that. Why would you want to face the Lord having given obeisance to a statue of Mary and to pray to the saints when you already have the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ? So there you go. This is the type of lesson that we can learn, actually, from the Old Testament pictures of Joseph. This is what God is showing us. He's, wake up, Jesus is coming. And then he comes and he says, wake up, he's here. And then when he goes away, he says, wake up, he's coming again. And it is all about him. Set in the highest honor with all rule and authority, the signet and the chariot and a golden chain, before him shall bow each and every knee. Every tongue will confess and none shall refrain. Verse 43 continues. So he sent him over all the land of egypt with the installation complete pharaoh's words to joseph are fulfilled he is now over all the land of egypt in like manner jesus has been ordained as the lord of heaven and earth and in confirmation of this pharaoh speaks yet one more time verse 44 pharaoh also said to joseph i am pharaoh and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of egypt the formal procedure of the rite has closed and Pharaoh seals the proceedings with his words, I am Pharaoh. And these honors I bestow upon you. You have absolute authority over my domain. The word testifies to the act. And this is just what is seen of Jesus once again in the second Psalm. It's referred to by the author of Hebrews too. This is Jesus' role as both priest and king. Here's what it says. I will declare the decree The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. At the word of Pharaoh, Joseph is ordained and at the word of Jehovah, Jesus is likewise ordained. Not a single verse has failed to be fulfilled in Jesus as we've traveled through these eight verses. With only one left, will we be able to find Jesus in that one too? Big question. Verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaph Nath Paanea. The name Zaph Nath Paanea is translated by the Christian theologian who did the translational work from the Hebrew and Greek into the Latin Vulgate Bible as Salvatorum Mundi. If you know your Latin, it means the Savior of the world. Mm-hmm. This is an exact description which is used twice by John in his writings about Jesus. In his first epistle, he confirms what he saw and what he heard concerning Jesus Christ. He wrote these words, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Salvator Mundi. Matthew Henry says this about the title, The brightest glories even of the upper world are put upon Christ, the highest trust lodged in his hand, and all power given him both in heaven and earth. Without a proper interpretation and handling of Pharaoh's dreams, the land of Egypt would have been swept away in famine and in drought. In acknowledgement that God has sent Joseph to save them, the title has been given indicating that through Joseph, the world will be saved. And the same is true with Jesus, sent by God to save the world when there was otherwise no hope at all. He has been promoted to the highest position of all to rule heaven and earth. I got to tell you something. Joseph is predicting a famine. Joseph says, get the grain ready, build granaries, get ready for what's coming. And we have Jesus, he's here and he gives us his word and he says, my word is your bread. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, it is our granary. It's our storage for the times of famine. And without this word, We, like the people of Egypt, will die and we will perish utterly from the face of the earth. But with this word, we have all of the nourishment that we need for our spiritual lives and for our reconciliation to God the Father and eternal life in the presence of his glory. That is the beauty of what we're seeing in these verses about Joseph prefiguring Jesus. And I can tell you something, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's what the word is trying to tell us time and time again. The granary is full. The granary speaks of Jesus and the granary shows us God's love. Get into it. That's why I challenge you to read your Bible every single day. Don't get far away from God and then say, oh God, I need you back in my life, which is what we're all prone to do. Instead, have him in your life so that when those times come and the famine is there, you've got the word. I cherish it more than my necessary food. I meditate on it day and night. Oh God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is the message of the Bible. Stay in the word and be filled with God moment by moment. Verse 45 does continue. Then he gave him his wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. This is the uniting of his kingly and priestly roles. And in, uh, to confirm that Joseph is given a wife from the priestly class. She is Asenath, which means she who is of Neith. Neith means wisdom. Asenath is the daughter of Petiphora, who is the priest of On. On means light, and Petiphora means he whom the Ra gave. Ra being the sun god, the one god of Egypt at that time. All of these names, Asenath, Petiphora, and On An have meaning. And be assured, each name and every word is given for a reason. But what I want you to focus on here is the similarity between Joseph and Jesus. It's seen in them being granted a Gentile bride. Each one of them receives that. While Joseph is rejected by and removed from his brothers, which is where he's at in this point in the story, he has become a blessing to the Egyptians, and he is given this Gentile wife. And in the same way, while Jesus is rejected by and removed from, from his people Israel during this dispensation of time, which we call the dispensation of grace or the church age, he has become a blessing to the Gentiles and has procured for himself a bride. This is seen in Acts chapter 15. It's seen in Ephesians chapter five. And it's also seen in this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says and remember who he's writing to. He is the apostle to the Gentiles writing to a Gentile church emblematic of all of our instruction The Gentile people during this dispensation, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul, speaking to the Gentiles of Corinth, confirmed that the church is betrothed to a bride as Christ, or as a bride to Christ. We are the bride of Christ, just as this Gentile woman whose name means she who is of wisdom is the Gentile bride of Joseph. And remember, this is a time of his brother's rejection of him. They sold him off to the Gentiles, just as the Jewish people sold Jesus off. And now Jesus is being proclaimed among the Gentiles during this time. And we'll see in the coming chapters, though, that Joseph's brothers will, in fact, come down to Egypt. They will bow to Joseph and they will be reconciled to him. For those who dismiss the Jewish people's role in future history as God's people, all they need to do is look back to these stories of Genesis and the structure that they show us time and time and time again. We saw it all through the life of Joseph. We're seeing it now in the life of, sorry, Jacob. And we'll see it all through the life of Joseph as well. Israel will be reconciled to their Lord. The time is coming and I got to tell you something. I don't think it's going to be very long away. The church age is going to end and Israel will again be the very center of God's attention. The Bible tells us that patterns repeat in history and it gives us the first of those patterns quite often so that we can recognize the repetition when it comes. So we can't say, I didn't know because he's already shown us what's coming in the past. So I want you all to go home not making one of two mistakes. The first would be to say that Israel of today, right now, is right with God at this point. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, and he was sold by them. And they are out of the picture during that period. And the same is true with Israel right now. Though we should support her because God is showing that they're coming back into his favor. We cannot condone her rejection of Jesus Christ, and we cannot waffle on our convictions concerning their need for him. And I'm bringing this up specifically. I don't want to give the guy's name, but there's a preacher out in Texas who you probably see on the TV quite often. And he is a great supporter of America and Israel, but he fails to evangelize the Jews. Instead, he says that they're saved through the covenant. They don't need to come to Christ individually. And he is condemning many, many souls to hell by not teaching them what is true. So we do not want to make that error. Every individual, Jew and Gentile-like, must come to Christ. Israel right now as a body is not right with God, but every individual Jew that comes to Christ is right with God, and those who don't are not. We need to not support ministries that teach that because it's actually harming the cause of Christ. It's not helping it. Now, the second error that I want you to stay away from is to say that Israel is out and they are done. The entire panorama of the life of Joseph as well as Jacob has shown that this is not the case. And with their return, which happened on 14 May of 1948, and then they got Jerusalem back on 7 June of 1967, it ought to be obvious what God is doing. We are at a wondrous time in human history. The spiritual banner is soon, and I don't know when. I'm not going to go making guesses about the date of the rapture, but it is soon going to pass back to Israel they will bow to their Lord and they will shed tears of joy when it comes. Book of Zechariah shows us that explicitly. It couldn't be clearer. And yet we close our eyes and we say, ah, the Jews are out. No, I have that Israel flag back there for a reason. It's because God is not through with those people yet. Verse 45 finishes with these words. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt Yes, Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt and the message of Jesus has gone out and it continues to go out into all the world. Joseph rules, Jesus rules. The patterns are beautiful and the story is marvelous. God chose these short, concise stories to show us that he is in control of time and circumstance. Every word opens up into another beautiful panorama of what God is doing in history and speaking of his son Jesus. And remember, if he is showing us Jesus, then he wants us to know Jesus. If we know every detail and we see every picture, but we miss the purpose of those things, then we've made the biggest mistake of all. As Paul says in his great discourse on love from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. The stories are given to show us the love. The love of God found in Jesus is what we see. Egypt is headed for disaster and God sends a deliverer. The sons of Israel will be headed for disaster and God sends deliverance. We are on a path to destruction and God sends Jesus. If he didn't love us, why would he do it? He wouldn't. He wouldn't have done any of this if he didn't want us to to return the love and return the faith in what he has done in his son, Jesus. But to demonstrate his love, to grant us his mercy and bestow upon us his grace, he condescended to come down to our lowly station and to wash our dirty feet. Indeed, as the Bible says, what manner of love is this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who." ever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and so having said that if you have never taken the time to call on jesus personally let me explain to you very quickly how you can do that the bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of god we are already separated from god because of our sin the wages of sin is death and that's a spiritual death that happened at the moment that adam violated god's promise or god's word He died spiritually and we have inherited that death. We're already dead. We don't need to do anything to be condemned. We're already on that highway. That's what Jesus himself says in John 3, 18. But he says there is a remedy. It's by calling on Jesus as Lord, offering him your sin and he will offer you his righteousness. And God, when he looks at you after that, all he'll see is the perfection of his son. He won't see all of your misdeeds and all of the things that you've done wrong in your life. If you have never gotten right with Jesus Christ, Please do it today. And if you're kind of not living for Christ right now, please turn your heart back to him. Pick up his word and read it. Spend time with your family in the word. Pray before your meals, thanking him for every good blessing. Thank him when you get up in the morning and thank him when you see a flower on the road during the day. He is worthy of it because he's done all of this just for you. I have a closing verse for you today from John, the gospel of John. I've already quoted you from 1 John chapter four, but I wanna read you from John chapter four now. It says, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world, Salvatorum Mundi. See, God's showing us these things so that we don't make the error when we come to the person of Jesus. Make sure that you're right with him. Get him in your heart and just live for him and honor him all the days of your life. Next week is Genesis 41, verses 46 through 57. I think that's what, 12 verses, whatever. Uh, It's called Prosperity and Famine. That'll be our 103rd Genesis sermon. And uh, I'd like to tell you this before we read our poem and take communion. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you And through you okay our poem today based on the verses that we just looked at and you know I was thinking about this um, about a week and a half ago as I was typing a poem I start snickering and I thought you know what you think that you're gonna come and get a sermon but you're gonna hear a passage three times every time that you come here because I read it before I give it and then I analyze it word-for-word and then I give it to you in a poem again so you're getting the Bible three times and if you stick with it long enough even by default, you'll have Genesis in your head three times simply because you're you're hearing these sermons. Sneaky Charlie. Ah, this is called the Savior of the World. So the advice of Joseph was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, as was noted. And in the eyes of all his servants, yes, each word as Joseph is quoted. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a one such as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? To not listen to him would certainly be remiss. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Words well thought through, inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Your wisdom intact I shall not dismiss. You shall be over my house in every affair, and all my people shall be ruled. According to your word as you declare, it shall be that by you my leaders are schooled. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt." the word i speak is true then pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on joseph's hand instead and he clothed him in garments of fine linen mazzeltoth a blessing upon his head and around his neck he put a gold chain in this act he honored joseph once again and he had him ride in the second chariot which he had and they cried out before him bow the knee so he sent him over all the land of egypt not so bad from prisoner to ruler almost instantly Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no man may lift a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. None shall circumvent. And Pharaoh from then on called Joseph's name Zaphnath-paaneah to remember that one, make up a word game. And he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt, and he was the sovereign ruler from that time on. In a marvelous array of pictures of Jesus, God has shown us Joseph's life and times. These have been given graciously to us for more than just fun and rhymes. Rather, they are words which show us of the majesty pronounced upon the Lord, the one who prevailed over the tomb, Jesus, as is revealed in God's superior word. Every detail, every verse we read is marvelously and intricately woven by God's hand, So to this precious book, let us ever pay heed. Through it, his heart we can truly understand. God's glory is revealed in his pages, showing us the light. God's grace radiates to his children as we plainly see. Let us exalt this marvelous Lord with all our might. Let us receive the gift of Jesus who paid our debt on the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for these beautiful pictures once again that just continuously show us of the more glorious work of Jesus our Lord. Thank you for him. Thank you for the salvation which comes through him. And thank you that you have condescended to come out of your eternal station to unite with human flesh and to just walk among us, to eat grain with us, to tell us of wondrous things, to wash our feet, to reconcile us to you by purifying us. And and just covering us with your righteousness you are wonderful you are great you are glorious you are just beyond description heavenly father please bless each person here today take care of them lead them in passive righteousness for your name's sake bring them safety in the week ahead happiness fun times good food all those things and then give them the wisdom oh god that they would turn around and praise you for the things they've received and give you the glory you're due you are so worthy of it and we fail so often. Help us not to make that error. We love you, we praise you, we glorify you in the exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus.